Welcome to the Mountain Park Church Podcast. We're excited to share this week's message with you. Our mission is to allow God to work in and through us, and we'd love to hear your story of how God has been working in or through you. Email us at mystory@mp.church and tell us how God has been working in and through you. But in life, sometimes the breakthrough is the storm has ceased, and sometimes God says, I'm going to get you through the storm. And, and I, I, think, I, I think our North American worldview sometimes wants us to, like, even while I'm saying that, some people here are just like under their breath, in the name of Jesus, I just don't receive that. I'm just, my storm's going away, and praise the Lord, hallelujah, I'm praying the Spirit. And, and the reality is we can't wish away pain. You, you probably figured out by now, but pain and, and difficulty don't make you unique. You're like, you're, you're, you're not special. It's a part of life. Jesus said, in this world you will have trouble, but take heart. I've overcome the world. And why we're supposed to take heart is because he wants to invite us into overcoming with him. He wants to invite us into overcoming. You know, the people who actually surround Jesus in the realm of heaven, uh, he says that he calls them overcomers. And I think people are called overcomers in heaven, not because it's like, it's not like, you know, when I sent my kids to public school and they, you know, they would go to like a track and field meet. They'd all come home with ribbons. I'm like, way to go, you guys. That's amazing. And then I read the ribbons and it says participant. <laughs> like, wow, you really did it. You were there. <laughs> Here's a ribbon. You showed up, you know. To be an overcomer in the, in, the, in the eternal realm of heaven is not your participant ribbon for living on earth. But I believe that overcomers are some people who've overcome some stuff. And so if you're in the middle of something tonight, I want you to encourage yourself in the Lord and be encouraged tonight that God's calling you through it to overcome and to more than conquer. And so I, I, just, I just know that God wants to encourage some faith tonight. And so I'm going to preach tonight from the Bible. How many here love the Bible? All right. I know you do. I, my wife and I, we uh, had a two-month sabbatical in uh, November and December, and so uh, we, we went all over the place, but while we were home, we came here one Sunday, and uh, Brenda brought, like, just a powerful word. We were here one Sunday when Brenda was preaching, and it was just like, wow, that's like one of the best messages I've ever heard. And uh, it, was just, it was just amazing just to, to feel the hunger for God's word here in this house, and so uh, we're, gonna, we're gonna just get into the word here in just a few moments. Um, A.W. Tozer said this, A.W. Tozer said, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Your perception of God. It doesn't mean that your perception is right. It's just it's the most important thing about you. What you think, what comes into your mind when you think about God. It's the most important thing about you. Why? Well, because your perception of God will be where you build your theology. And if your view of God is one of, you know, that God is just kind of like a, you know, a chill hippie, you know, where you just, you know, you kind of, you, you sin, but Jesus is cool. You're like, hey, Jesus, I totally sinned there. And he's like, it's all right, man. I got you covered. <laughs> You're like, thanks. And he's like, peace. And then you guys wear togas and stuff. That's, going, that's the most important thing about you. Why? Because you might have a fairly decent understanding of mercy, but 
Someone in that situation would have almost no understanding of the fear of the Lord. If your view of God was that he was just, you know, like an angry volcano God, where, you know, if you do the wrong thing, he's just going to throw something nice into his volcano. You're like, what are you talking about? I, I, I remember hearing someone preach on tithing, and they were like, they're like, if you don't tithe, God's going to get his tithe anyways. He is, you know, he is going to get his 10%. So if you don't tithe, your dishwasher's going to break down, your car's going to break down. I was like, that doesn't sound like Father God. That sounds like the Godfather. Like, you know. And don't get me wrong, I believe in tithing, I believe in generosity, but I don't think it's, I don't, I've never met a healthy tither whose view was, I better do this or God's going to break my car. But I, I, I've got a passion for the house of God and I want to be a part of building it. That, that, that's healthy. What comes into your mind when you think about God, it's the most important thing about you. Because perception becomes your reality. If you were in this room tonight and you you sincerely believed that there was a fire in this building. If that was your perception, the way that you would engage in this room would be unlike how we're all behaving right now. But because your perception is that there's a fire, you would be screaming at the top of your lungs and telling everybody to get out and, and you know, willing to look like an idiot in, in the short term because you're so convinced that you're sparing lives in the long term. I don't care how I look. I don't care if I'm interrupting the service. I don't care. I, we need to get out of here. Why? Because that's your perception and you behave out of that reality. What comes into your mind when you think about God is the most important thing about you because more important than whether this building is fine or on fire, more important than how your finances are doing, more important than the raise of the bonus or that you lost your job, more important than anything going on relationally, family-wise, health-wise, the most important thing about you and me is what comes into our mind when we think about God. Therefore, it's important to think rightly about God. To not reduce God to someone that we can make into our image. Years ago, this t-shirt said, Jesus is my homeboy. People wore those with pride, like, yeah, Jesus is my homeboy. I was like, I don't think he is. <laughs> Romans chapter 12, verse 2 says, do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed. In the Greek, metanoia, transformed by the renewing of your mind. And then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. The transformation of our lives, stay with me based on this word, the transformation of our lives is not so much spiritual as it is mental, according to Romans 12.2 that we are transformed by the renewing of our mind. Thinking right, what we think about God is the most important thing about us. That we have good doctrine, good theology, a good understanding of God's word. I, I remember hearing a few years ago on the news, they were saying that in the waters around Montreal in the St. Lawrence Seaway, they had discovered that, that the, the fish in the waters around there when they were just testing, you know, how, how is the wildlife around here testing the ecosystem, they found that the fish in Montreal were filled with antidepressants. They were like the happiest fish in Canada. 
People come along fishing, they're like, it's fine. Bonjour. <laughs> and the reason for that was, was because people who had antidepressants and hadn't used them properly, they were just throwing them down the sink and it was getting into the water, the waterway. And so all of the fish in that immediate area were just, they're just swimming in it. And unbeknownst to them, it was getting into the, the, the meat. It was getting into who they are. And we swim in a culture that tries to infect the way that we think, tries to infect our theology, our view of human sexuality, our view of what is holy, of what is right, of God and his mercy and his grace and his holiness and his justice, and we swim in it. And if we don't come to a Romans 12 to encounter with God, we could conform to the pattern of the world that we're swimming in. But we're called to be transformed by the renewing of our mind. And the purpose of that transformation is so that we might be able to know the will of God. That's what Romans 12, 2 says. So that we could know the will of God for our lives. How many want to know God's will for your life? Okay. We need to be transformed. I'd like to suggest to you that repentance isn't just the way into the kingdom, but repentance, changing the mind, repentance is the way of the kingdom. I'm not saying living constantly, you know, genuflecting and being sorry. Oh, God, I'm, I'm, I'm such a poor person. That, that's, a, that's an image problem. But repentance meaning transformation, changing the mind. That we need to constantly be able to have our minds changed. Can I just say this to you for free? Yes, you can. Because I got the microphone. Teachability needs to become a really high priority for us. To be teachable. Can I, can I just say how rare teachability is for people who genuinely seek counsel and then actually abide by it? Like don't just ask, hey, what do you think of this? At the end, you know, someone makes an appointment. Hey, Pastor Matt, um, we sold our house and our cars and... Um, we're moving to wherever. Talk, talk, talk. There's a Bible college with three people in it, and I saw it online, and we're moving our whole family up there. What do you think? I think you don't really care what I think because you sold your car and your house and bought the place up in Talk, talk, talk. So I don't think you care. I think what you want is me to say, awesome. So listen carefully when your pastor plays, oh God, just bless them. Just bless them, lead them. Show. Just a generic, yeah, cover that one, God. Because it's not teachable to just swing into, ask for an endorsement stamp instead of actually seeking counsel. Seeking wisdom, looking for the voice of God in the ministry of God's word, in the body of Christ, and under the anointed leadership that God has placed over you, and wise counselors in your life, setting yourself to be teachable because Romans 12, 2 does us no good if we figure that that happened when we got saved. Oh yeah, I, I was transformed by the renewing of my mind when I asked Jesus to be the Lord of my life. Well, you started 
but there's more transformation yet. Unless you're already perfect. So for the rest of us, there's some progress to be made. Continual transformation. Some of the frustration I experienced early in ministry was when I wanted to see transformation around me that hadn't occurred inside of me yet. You know, when I see and, and, and read in the word about miracles and, and man, I want to see miracles, but like you can never, you can never expect more of the kingdom outside of you than the level of the kingdom that's been experienced on the inside of you. We need to be experiencing transformation on the inside before we're just trying to get it to happen on the outside. Or so we try to use ministry gifts to try to pad our own resume, okay? So I want to I want to touch on a couple of things here tonight as it pertains to viewing God right. If you're going to take some notes, which it's always good to do because paper doesn't forget and, and it helps us just to revisit what God is kind of stirring in our hearts. But I want to, I want to talk about viewing God right, getting a proper view of God. In Matthew chapter 25, Jesus uh, tells, you know, one of the, the parables that is often referenced, you know, quite often in ministry because it's got so many layers of application. And, and, and probably in your own life, you've fed from this parable. What Jesus did in his teaching style very often was he would, he would take a word picture. A parable is just a word picture. He would tell a story or use a word picture of something that we have a general knowledge of. And then he would apply that to something we need to learn more of in the kingdom. Take what you know about this and apply it to the kingdom. And Jesus, in Matthew 25, told the parable of the talents. And it's, it's the story of a moneylender who's a type of God the Father who gives talents, which are a, a large amount of money, to each servant who, on the basis of their ability, which the inference we could get is that the one who had been given five had already proven that he could handle money, and so he was given five, and the one who had been given two had probably done okay with you know, one talent before, and then he gave one talent, one measurement of money to uh, a, a guy who was probably just kind of green behind the ears. Let's just give this guy uh, some money and see what he can do with it. And Jesus tells this word picture, and it's meant to express to us how we are to multiply and maximize what God has placed upon our lives. And so he gives this picture, and he says, the guy who got five talents, so let's just say that's, you know, $50,000. He gives him $50,000. He goes and invests it and gets $50,000 more. And, and the money lender, the God the Father in this story, says, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into your master's, you know, inheritance and joy. The one who had two, he multiplied his as well. Doubled them up. But the guy who had one talent, the guy who had one talent said this. He said, Matthew chapter 25, verse 24, said, Master, I knew that you are a hard man, harvesting where you've not sown and gathering where you've not scattered seed. So I was afraid, and I went out and hid your talent in the ground. See? Here's what belongs to you. And the master replies, you wicked, unfaithful servant. Take from this guy and give it to the guy who multiplied his five into ten and give him another one. 
Because whoever has will be given more, but whoever does not have, even what he has will be taken from him. And we just kind of, you know, try to skim over that, just put some icing on that, just kind of some North America, you know, just what we're swimming in, just try to spread that over, just say, yeah, I don't think Jesus ever said mean things. I don't know, read the Gospels a little closer. It would have been tough to be a disciple. You know, how many times does Jesus show up and, you know, the disciples can't, like, cast a demon out of somebody and Jesus is like, you unbelieving, perverse generation, how long will I put up with you? They're like, sorry. Jesus tells us this story to teach us something about the nature of God. That when God puts talent and investment, calling, gifts, anointing, opportunities upon a life, he doesn't say, do the following 17 things with it. He gives us gifts and then he says, I want to see what you do with it. I'll be back to settle up accounts. Some people are trying to figure out the will of God. They're like waiting for a burning bush and 27 instructions. And God's like, I want you to be a little creative. Try some stuff. I need 14 more confirmations, God. God's like, just try something. Just, just be bold. Take what I've given you. Do something with it. You know, God is not impressed with your gift. When our kids were little, you know, I'd, at Christmas time, I'd give them $20 so that they could buy me a Christmas present. I wasn't impressed that they spent $20. I was moved at what they thought would move me. And I don't know why, but for like five years straight, my kids thought I really liked nutcrackers. You know, the, <laughs> you know those soldier things with the tails on the jacket that crack walnuts? I've got like 17 of them. I think my wife just thought it was hilarious. Like, hey kids, your dad loves these. And so every Christmas, like, wow, thank you. It's amazing. But it actually was special. Why? Because they had become convinced somehow that I loved it. And so when they got their money, they're like, we're gonna go find a good one. They got me a Toronto Maple Leafs one once. And how many know that's God's will? So <laughs> see this confirmation. The point is. I'm not impressed they spent $20 on me. I moved at what they did with it. God's not impressed if you're musical. He's not going, wow, you can sing? He gave you that. <laughs> God's like, what a voice. No, it's how you use the voice. It's how you play. If you've got a, a mind for finance, God's like, wow, you, you got, you're brilliant at money. It's how you use the money the talents. And the one who had, get this now, the one who had a wrong view of God. How do we know he had a wrong view of God? He took the investment that the moneylender, so God the Father, took the investment that God gave to him. He buried it in the yard. And then when the moneylender comes home, he, he digs it out like a squirrel and, and dusts it off. And I didn't lose it. It's a little dirty but I didn't lose it. Here's your talent covered in mud. Why'd you do that? Because I knew you were harsh. I, I, I knew that you, you were kind of really stern. And I knew that you 
harvest where you didn't sow. And so I was just afraid, so I hid it, but I didn't lose it. Here you go. And God's answer to not multiplying what he gives us is not, okay, well, better luck in the next life. His answer is that's wicked and unfaithful. And why did the servant with the one talent, why, why did he do nothing? Because he had a wrong view of God. And I would like to suggest to you that if your perception of God is wrong, you can deceive yourself in the lifestyles and behaviors that are not appropriate for a believer. You can convince yourself that what you're doing or what you're not doing is okay because your theology, your view of God accommodates it. But deception, <laughs> nobody, nobody struggles with deception where it's like, you know, there's a prayer circle. It's like, what are you struggling with? Well, I'm just praying for a breakthrough with a job. What are you praying for? Praying for my family, just need a salvation. What are you praying for? I'm, I have, I'm struggling with deception in three areas. The nature of deception is you don't know you're deceived. And if you're deceived, when it comes to your view of God, when you're deceived, that's when you, you sin by faith. That's when you take an action and you're like, oh, I know you're this way, so I just buried it. And God's like, that's not me. And you'll have to answer for the wrong view that you had of me. This one with one talent, his view of God threw everything off. I'd like to suggest to you that a wrong view of God will not cause you to act wrongly, but it will cause you to not act at all. Bad theology creates a paralysis of behavior towards God and others. That if I, listen, if I have a bad theology of prayer, it's not that I'm going to pray bad prayers, it's that I'm just not going to pray. Because I just don't see the point. I don't know what prayer is doing. If I've got a bad theology in the area, it's going to cause me to have a paralysis of belief. It's going to cause me to have a paralysis of behavior. And listen, if I view God wrong, I'll remain inactive in moments when I'm required to respond in faith. And God is looking for a church of believers. The parable of the talents is meant to speak to our hearts that God is looking for people that he can entrust with more and more and more because their view of him is right. They will serve him with a bold, courageous faith that they'll step out and they'll try some things and they're not sitting and, and spiritualizing their lack of inactivity. I, we're just not sure what to do, so we're just going to pray more. We're like Gideon with the fleece, except for like, we're fleecing it like once a day for six years before we're sure. Just wanna to be totally positive. But we live by faith, not by understanding, not by sight. So we need to have a right view of God. We need to have a right view of God. So let me, let me, let me just give you a couple of examples and then we're going to pray. And what I really want to zero in on tonight is if you find yourself in a place where you have a need that only God can meet and you pray hard and the answer doesn't come, if there's loss or pain or grief, that experience can try to reshape your view of God. 
can try to rewrite your theology. God, only you can break through here and you didn't break through here, so I just, I don't know. I don't know what to think. I used to think that God was really good, but if, this, if he let this happen, that's not good. And so then I can start to question his goodness. Or I used to think that God was really powerful, but he didn't move in this situation, so maybe he's not as powerful as I thought. What do we do when we have a high belief in a powerful, good God, and yet we experience disappointment? Am I talking to anybody tonight? What do we do then? What we need to do then is maintain a right view of God and kind of stay in the simple categories of theology that God is good and the devil is bad. Because if you cross those wires, everything goes haywire. If you credit to God, if you credit the bad things in your life to God like God did it, whew, It's hard to pray in faith for a breakthrough the next time. And what I want to say is that we need to have a conviction that God is good. And the conviction that God is good needs to be the basis of the rest of all of our theology. So let me just give you two examples and then we're going to pray. In Numbers chapter 16, the Bible talks about when Moses was leading God's people and uh, he's leading God's people and they've, they've come through, you know, they've had the plagues and then God's spared his people. They get out of the captivity of Egypt. They've been loaded down with blessings, parts the sea, they get through on the other side and the people are hungry and then God sends down bread from heaven and then the people are like, ah, oh, this bread from heaven is kind of lame. And so then God gives them like quail that just fly into their mouths every night. <laughs> well, they could catch them and then... It'd be weird to just fly right in your mouth. But God provides for them supernaturally. But the people kind of, they get tired of Moses' leadership. And so there's this group of people, long story short, a group of people decide that they want to have an election. They want Korah to be their leader. And so they wish that, that God's people could have a democracy. And so they decide they're going to have a vote. There's some campaigning in the lobby. And uh, they're like, let's, let's get Korah to be our leader. And so... The Bible says that when that rebellion began, God opened up the earth and swallowed 250 people. So what that means is not that there was a random earthquake, but, but God caused the earth to open up and swallow to it. Like it opened up, the people fell into it, and then it closed again like the earth gulped. Okay. And so the people stopped their campaign. They put down their posters But then they came back the next day and the Bible says that they were mad at Moses because they thought Moses did it, which really doesn't make sense because if you thought that a man had the power to make the earth open up and swallow people, I don't know if I'd pick a fight with that guy. But they did. And so they start speaking out against Moses, okay? Numbers chapter 16, verse 42. But when the assembly gathered in opposition to Moses and Aaron, when the, when the assembly gathered in opposition to Moses and Aaron and turned toward the tent of meeting, suddenly the cloud covered it and the glory of the Lord appeared. Then Moses and Aaron went to the front of the tent of meeting 
And the Lord said to Moses, get away from this assembly so I can put an end to them at once. And they fell face down. And then Moses said to Aaron, take your censer and put incense in it along with fire from the altar and hurry to the assembly to make atonement for them. Wrath has come out from the Lord. The plague has started. So Aaron did as Moses said, and he ran into the midst of the assembly. The plague had already started among the people, but Aaron offered the incense and made atonement for them. Verse 48, he stood between the living and the dead and the plague stopped. But 14,700 people died from the plague in addition to those who had died because of Korah. And then Aaron returned to Moses at the entrance to the tent of meeting for the plague had stopped. Okay, God says to Moses and Aaron, the people are campaigning against Moses and God's had enough. And so God says to Moses and Aaron, God says, listen, when we say God says, a lot of people, like that's where we just say, if God said it, that's it, I believe it, that's what's happening, I'm just all about what God said. Okay, so chapter and verse, God says, verse 45, get away from this assembly so I can put an end to them at once. God sounds like a WWE wrestler. Get away from them, I'm gonna put an end to them at once, brother. That's what God said. Are you with me? That's what God said. And Moses and Aaron fall face down. Sometimes when we read the Bible, we know the end of the story and we pull ourselves out of the meaning of it if we just stay with it in real time. God says, get away, I want to put an end to these people. Moses and Aaron are face down. Picture it. And Moses turns his face in the dirt, his beard full of dirt, and he turns to Aaron and he says, go into the tent of meeting, get some fire from the altar, get some incense, and run to the people. Aaron's thought process, perhaps. God said, get away from the people. Because he said he was going to end them. God God said he was going to end them, and he said to get away from them. Chapter and verse, get away from the people. But you're saying, go to the people. Aaron, don't argue with me. I'm the Lord's anointed. Get some incense and run to the people. And we just read it. Aaron runs with incense and a coal from the altar, and he stands between the living and the dead, and the plague stops. Question, what made Moses think that his idea would work? When God said, get away, I'm going to kill the people. And he goes, run to the people with incense from the altar. I'd like to suggest to you that Moses was convinced that God is good even when God's angry. He was convinced he had this intimate friendship with God that we could stand to learn from somebody who talked with God face to face the way that friends talk. That in his communion with the Lord, Moses got imprinted with God's glory so much that his face often glowed 
from the radiance, like changing the molecules in his face. <laughs> they put a bag over his face because the glory of God was on his face. That had to be good for his self-esteem. Hey, Moses, could we just put a bag on your head so we can talk with you for a bit? His encounter with God, it was like he understood God to be like a dad. Every dad, every mom in this room who's ever had to discipline a child and said to them, this is going to hurt me more than it's going to hurt you. I can't look the other way. I can't condone this rebellion. I can't let this slide. I can't, I can't let this kind of rebellion become the culture of my people. I need to punish it. And Moses didn't need another word from God. What was imprinted on his heart was God's good. And if God's pouring out wrath, it's only because he has to. It's not because he wants to. And he's looking for an intercessor. He's looking for someone to stand. Number 16, 20, 49, one of my favorite verses. They stood between the living and the dead. He's looking for someone to stand between the living and the dead so that mercy can triumph over judgment. God is good. God is good. One more picture. I don't know if you've ever stopped to consider the story of Jonah. That let's just, let's just imagine that God is speaking to a room full of prophets and he's trying to find a prophet. Who would like to go and prophesy to Nineveh that I'm gonna judge them? And all the prophets are like, oh, me. Being a prophet, God use me. God, I've been fasting and praying. I ate a meat bar today. I, I want you to use me, God. And God's, everyone's like standing on their desk. You know those kids in school? Me, 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 me. And God's like, uh, Jonah is like laid out in the seats in the back. Like I hope he doesn't know I'm here. And God like stands on a chair in the front. And he's like, Jonah, you. God could have picked anybody. He picks the guy who says, I don't want to. You ever, have you ever asked the question, why did God choose Jonah? What if you ever asked the question? Like, I want you to go preach to the people. He's like, I don't want to. How much don't you want to? I'm going to get in a boat and go the other way. Jonah gets in a boat, he's heading the wrong way, storm whips up, everyone's like, somebody here is displeasing their God. Jonah's like, throw me overboard, it's me. And they're like, you sure, buddy? Yeah. They throw him overboard, it's so weird. Just, they're just like, maybe this will work. And they toss Jonah over. As soon as Jonah hits the water, calm. And then a fish, not a whale. We always say whale, but it's like a big fish. I don't know what kind of fish, but a big one. Just comes and swallows Jonah. And Jonah is inside that fish for three days. And God directs the fish to take it all the way to Nineveh. And he barfs Jonah onto the shore. And he gets out of the fish, covered in fish barf, 
And he walks into Nineveh. I'm sure he stunk. And he's like, okay, everybody, 120,000 people, city of 120,000 people. You're all going to die. God's going to judge you. Your, your, your sin has reached his nostrils. And he's going to put an end to you. Jonah's reluctant. He doesn't want to go preach that message. And the interesting thing is he doesn't want to preach that message because Jonah actually, he, here's the ironic thing, he actually wants the Ninevites to die. And I mean this with all due respect, but if we understand the historical context of this, this, is, this would be like taking a Jew out of a concentration camp and telling them to go to a Nazi convention. The Ninevites were ruthless, evil people. And Jonah doesn't want to go. God is pulling the prophets. Everyone's going like this. And he goes, you in the back, Jonah. You're up. And when Jonah runs the other way, God doesn't like, oh, okay, I'll pick another guy. God's like, hey, fish, go to Nineveh and vomit. <laughs> Why did God insist on Jonah? Jonah chapter three, verse 10. When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, meaning what? The whole city of Nineveh, 120,000 people, they start repenting, putting on sackcloth and ashes and weeping and asking God for mercy. Why? Because Jonah was crazy anointed. He preaches without a megaphone or Instagram or anything else, doesn't book the arena, he just walks around and says, you're all gonna die. People start repenting. When God saw that that they repented, he had compassion and did not bring upon them the destruction that he threatened. Jonah 4, verse 1. But Jonah was greatly displeased and he became angry and he prayed to the Lord, Oh Lord, is this not what I said when I was still at home? That was why I was so quick to flee to Tarshish. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Now, oh Lord, take away my life as it's not, I don't even want to live anymore. Why did God insist on Jonah? Because it was Jonah's conviction that God was actually, if I say repent and God's spirit is on me, God is going to use that message to put conviction in their hearts. And even though he's saying he's going to judge them, he's going to have mercy on them. And I don't want him to have mercy on them. And God's like, I don't need all the prophets waving their hands in the air going, use me, use me, use me. God says, I want the guy who actually believes I'm good. Because listen, what you actually believe about God will come through louder than what you say. You're all going to die. And the people here, maybe there's a chance that this God would have mercy on us. Jonah is disappointed. He wanted to be a prophet. And God made him an evangelist. And the whole city experiences the mercy of God. God can overcome bad convictions if you have good theology. What I mean is, Jonah's conviction was these people deserve to die. But I know God's good and he has mercy. And God's like, I can work with your bad ideas about people but you got the right idea about me I can use your life 
Here's the point for us tonight. We were singing earlier tonight about God's goodness is chasing after us all the days of our lives. We're living in a culture. Romans chapter one and two makes it absolutely without a doubt clear. We're living in a culture right now, Canadian culture, North American culture. It's under the judgment of God. That's Romans one and two, read it for your own understanding. But we're living in a culture that is under judgment from God. God's not looking for a church that sits back and goes, yeah, that's what you get, sinners. You're living like that, receiving your body the due penalty for your sin. God's handing you over to it. And that's, that's the judgment of God. That's the wrath of God. God's not looking for a church that looks for things to get worse as confirmation that Jesus is coming back and we get excited the more earthquakes there are. Jesus said there's going to be earthquakes. There's another earthquake. He's coming back any minute. God's looking for a church that like Moses and Aaron with our faces in the dirt, when we hear about judgment and we see wrath, we turn with the heart of God and we say, God, send me with the aroma of Christ amongst the living and the dead. Send me with the message of your love and compassion. God's looking for a church with people who would have a heart like Jonah that we would just know that God, if we tell the truth, you're going to move and bring about conviction and you're going to bring hearts to yourself. God, send us. We're not running away from the people. We're not wishing that they would die. God, send us to people that need a life-changing encounter with you. We need to be a church that has a right view of God, because if we would know that he is good, no matter what, no matter what disappointment or pain we've ever experienced in life, no matter what we see going on in the world around us and the shaking of our culture outside these doors. Listen, God's looking for a church that would get on our faces and say, God, because you're good, put your anointing on me and send me to stand between the living and the dead. Would you stand to your feet with me tonight? Close your eyes all over this room. Here's what I want us to do first of all. Just, I want us just to ask God to give to us a right view of himself. Would you do this tonight? Why don't you just lift both your hands to the Lord all over this room? Go ahead, just lift your hands to the Lord. Just begin to talk to God right now. Just... You don't have to shout. You don't have to yell. But just begin to just pray. Just begin to talk to God. If you have a prayer language and pray in the Holy Spirit, go ahead and pray in the Holy Spirit. We're just going to just stir the atmosphere right now to just turn our hearts toward the Lord and build ourselves up in the most holy faith with surrendered hands, surrendered hearts. We stand in this atmosphere tonight, God. Our hands are lifted to you, Jesus. Father God, we recognize that the most important thing about us is what we think of when we think of you. Tonight, God, would you work a conviction in us like Moses had, that when we see wrath, we come up with ideas and ways to be vehicles of mercy. Would you work in us, oh God, a conviction of your goodness. Let us be so convinced that you are good, that we would never question it on the basis of negative experience or challenge in life but open our eyes and let us see you, God. Transform us by the renewing of our mind. 
Give us wisdom and understanding so we can know Jesus better. Open our eyes. Holy Spirit, do a deep work in us, I pray. Do a deep work in us, and I pray. Go ahead, just lift your own voice to the Lord. Open my eyes, Jesus. Let me see you. Let me see you right. Entrust me with many talents, God, that I would invest the opportunities, the resources, the gifts, the anointing, the times and places, God, that I would maximize every moment for you because I know that you're merciful, compassionate, gracious. Do that work in me, God, I pray. Thank you, Jesus. Okay, here's what I want us to do now. I want you to just put your hand on the shoulder of the person beside you, if you would. I want us to pray right now that God would birth in us a, a burden for people that don't know Jesus. Let's call them what the Bible calls them. They're lost. They're lost. It's not holier than thou. That's Yeah, it's politically incorrect, but it's the word of the Lord. People are lost. And if that doesn't grip us, then what we think about in that area, what we won't do something. If we have the wrong theology, we just won't act. There's a world that needs an encounter with Jesus. There's people in your family, they need an encounter with God. We need a burden from heaven. We, we, need, we need what was in Moses' heart. God, send me to a world. Can we just not make this generic? Right where you are, I want you to pray for somebody by name. Would you pray for someone by name? Pray for a family member, pray for a coworker, pray for somebody by name right now. There's married couples here right now. You're praying for your kids for the thousandth time. Pray again. But pray right now, Jesus, grip our hearts with a passion for lost people. Send us into a world with the aroma of Christ. Send us into this world with your anointing, with your truth that sets people free. Father, make us agents of your mercy. I pray, oh God, that you would give us a heart for the world around us, people that need Jesus. Break fear out of us, God. The fear that that servant with the one talent had, a wrong image, a wrong view. God, maybe we haven't caught your heart for people like Moses did, that even when he saw wrath, he knew you wanted to act in mercy like Jonah did, that when he heard wrath, he knew you were actually gonna act in mercy. I pray, God, that we'd get a right view that you actually burn for the lost, for God's so love that he gave. God, give us a burden for this city. Lord, for the people that call Niagara Falls their hometown, give us a burden for this city. The people that come in and out to blow their wealth at casinos, the people that come in and out just to see a wonder, but they, they come in and they, they go, Lord, give us a burden for people. Give us a burden, Lord, for the lost. 
for the human trafficking and prostitution, the things that are happening all around us, the drug abuse, the loss. God, people with all kinds of different worldviews and different beliefs, give us your burden, God, for a world in need of Jesus. Do what only you can do. Grip our hearts until our instinct is like Moses. We come up with avenues to deliver mercy into a world around us, a message of hope, a message of life, a message of God saves, a message of repentance, a message of peace with God. And let it be the embodiment of our lives. Pray in Jesus' name, in Jesus' name, in Jesus' name. We hope that you are challenged and inspired by what you heard today and that you're willing to allow God to work in and through your life in bigger ways this week. We'd love to stay connected with you on social media, facebook.com slash mountainparkchurch and instagram.com slash mountainparkchurch. Finally, if you have a story of how God has been working in and through you, we'd love to hear it. Just email us at mystory@mp.church and tell us how God has been working in your life lately.